Well, right, and amen, as our, uh, as our young ones are going to their special time of discipleship, let us kind of center our hearts and get ready to continue um, our work through the book of Galatians. I was sharing with the, uh, the saints in the 930 service how, as I've been walking through this, I don't know about you, but I've grown to appreciate uh, a couple of different things about the Apostle Paul. One, his heart as a scholar, as I see him craft and build uh, a number of different arguments to help, uh, again, the, the Gentile saints, they are believers, they're brothers and sisters in Christ, the Gentile saints in the Galatian church who are struggling to be properly and effectively identified as the real deal. And I'm watching him with great scholarship build these wonderful arguments from so many different directions to help them recenter their focus and get back to a place of truth and what it really means to be a real believer. And it's not about adopting more Judaism. And then I see also his pastoral heart and how it is that he cares deeply. This is not just some treatise that he's outlining. It, it, this letter is dripping with pastoral concern and also scholarly um, dialogue. And I, uh, I just uh, pray that you are seeing that as well and that your hearts are being duly impacted that, you know, as we, we have people in our lives who may be struggling with some facet of their practical theology and we're trying our best to help them. And sometimes if you're not careful, you can, you know, at the coffee shops or at your dinner tables or in your dens or garages, wherever you encounter people, we can shift into one gear or the other. And we give people, you know, a full barrel of truth, but not necessarily the second one of grace or vice versa. We're all grace and no truth. And I just see the Apostle Paul laboring so deeply to be, uh, be both pastoral, modeling great care for those that are kind of wavering uh, in their in their orthodoxy, as well as being very strategic and academic. And I think this is something that we can learn from his general attitude uh, in that regard. Well, um, let us get going. We're going to pray. Kara, are you here? Oh, there you are. So I asked Kara, I was like, Kara, should I wear a sweater today? She was like, no, you're going to sweat through that. And uh, so, uh, so far you are correct. I have not sweated today. This has been really good. Uh, I may go with the short sleeve type of situation for the entire winter uh, to kind of offset my, uh, my gift of perspiration. So um, anyway, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we are excited. Our hearts are uh, just uh, to the brim with anticipation. What else would you say to us through this particular passage? What more can we understand about you and about your son and about your spirit and about our own salvation through the lens of this particular passage, Lord God? Um, these are the moments that you have ordained for the instruction of your people in mass. You are the one who built the church. The church is not this building. It is this uh, unique and distinct gathering of people. And so as we gather in your name, we believe what the scriptures say, that you'd be here in the midst. And Lord God, would you allow there to be a clear demonstration of your spirit? Uh, Lord God, allow us to walk out, of, walk out of here with the receipts that, we, that you showed up, with receipts. With, 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 Lord God, proof that we can show to others who might not ever darken the doors of a church that our lives are being actively challenged and changed by the things that we do when we gather in your name. Lord God, would you give us that evidence? Not that we might have increased credibility before man, but that our, by our good works, others might be compelled to glorify you and to come sniff this place out, to explore this gospel, to, uh, uh, to, to have, uh, uh, Lord God, a Christ-centered curiosity that would lead them into the pages of Scripture, Lord God. 
You know all of the places where we go. You know all of our respective mission fields, whether it's where we play or whether it's where we work or where we live. Lord God, would you please equip us now, Lord God, to be more forthright in those spaces. Would you help us, oh God, to see you and to see your word in such a way that we get a deeper self-awareness and that our hearts would turn where necessary, that our characters would adjust where necessary. And Lord God, um, we would become better um, spouses, we become better siblings, we become better children. Whatever it is that you desire to do, Lord God, your curriculum, uh, whatever your curriculum is, Lord God, we're, we, we want to be up for the task. So, Lord God, we entrust this time over to you and beg and ask that you would just meet with us and do whatever you want to do in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, all right, so you've already heard kind of that one-liner from today's text. You may have been wondering what's going on, why didn't we read more, because I'm going to be reading a lot to you this morning. And uh, when we look at this particular passage, Galatians chapter 4, uh, verses 21 through 31, there's going to be three distinct movements that I walk us through. And I walk you through those movements, and I'm going to read some of this now, and I'm going to obviously uh, kind of drag the text a little bit and maybe even uh, place some emphasis in particular places where I want you to be focused because they will represent the pillars of today's message. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. You know, y'all know he's talking about Sarah and Hagar, right? But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, talking about physical, present, ethnic Jerusalem, right? The people. She is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, but the Jerusalem above, and she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who, do not, who, do not, uh, who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, now also is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is pretty iconic if you really understand what's happening. Okay? So just to kind of refresh you real quick, um, our, our predecessors in the faith, the, the saints at the church of Galatia, are being invaded by outsiders, Judaizers, people who are coming in and saying that if you want to be the real deal, you got to get more Jewish. And obviously, this has led to them reading the scriptures in a particular way, as the Apostle Paul opens by saying, hey, when you, do, do you, you, you who want to be under the law, 
Have you really listened to it? Now, again, Paul uses the word law to refer to, to this large corpus of the Old Testament, not just the Ten Commandments, all right? Stay with me. And so he's challenging them to say, I get it. You as Galatians are on the hunt for the most genuine expression of the Christian faith that you can possibly find. You're on the hunt. But as you're on the hunt for that most genuine expression of the Christian faith, you have effectively begun barking up the wrong tree on that hunt. And so hence the title of today's message, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. No doubt everyone in this room has probably heard that phrase. Who in the room has heard by a show of hands the phrase, barking up the wrong tree? It is a hunting analogy or a hunting illusion. So typically when hunters are hunting small prey, particularly those that can climb trees, raccoons and squirrels, you will use the assistance of a dog who captures their scent. The dog speedily picks up their scent, runs ahead of the hunters into the woods, and he will tree the animal that the hunters are supposed to hunt. And when he trees, what it means is he gets around the bottom of the tree and he, oh, 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 he changes his bark. He changes his bark because the hunters can't run as fast as the dog. So they have to hear the dog sound when he changes. So he initially starts with a yell, ar, ar, ar. that means he's on the run. But then he, he changes his bark when he gets to the bottom of the tree. And that's the indication that the, the creature that they're hunting is up in that tree. Now here's the challenge. If the, prey, if the prey is smart enough to run up a tree in a densely wooded area, he runs into an area where the tree has multiple branches at the top that are overlapping with the branches of this whole network of trees. And so he'll jump from one tree to the next and to the next and to the next. And so the dog who is not working from his, from his, with his eyesight, he's working with his strong sense of smell, can actually clue the hunters in to the wrong tree. Therefore, the phrase is born, barking up the wrong tree. Hear me carefully. The dog honestly wants to please his masters. The dog earnestly wants to catch the squirrel or the possum. The dog energetically has given all his might to be as accurate as he is, but he is genuinely and energetically wrong. He's barking up the wrong tree. So much so is the case with our friends in the faith, the Galatian saints. They are on the hunt for the most genuine expression of the Christian faith that they can possibly find, but yet as they have been trying to track this script, track this idea through the genealogy, if you will, of Abraham, per the words of the Judaizers that have been influencing their hearing, they have begun barking up the wrong family tree. This isn't just a risk point for the Galatians, it's also a risk point for us. Uh, Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to it? Do you not listen? It's obvious that you've read it, but what is your takeaway? What is the meaning? What is your understanding? How is it being explained? So what he is challenging the Galatian saints, and by extension, he is challenging us to do, is to develop a hermeneutic that allows us to arrive at the right conclusion. Now, you heard me say the word hermeneutic. You're looking around trying to figure out where hermen is because obviously he already knew it. No, hermeneutic is a, is a word, means a method of interpretation. It's something that they teach us in school. But you too, whether you went to seminary or not, you also have a hermeneutic. 
We all have a hermeneutic. We have a means or a grid or a lens through which we look at our world, and that lens allows us to assign meaning to the things that we see. It helps us to explain the world around us. And what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Galatian saints is, when you read the scriptures, you were reading with the wrong lens because you obviously didn't explain that allegory correctly, so let me help you in the next few verses and paragraphs. But they aren't the only ones at risk. And so my admonition this morning, my challenge from the text is this. Don't let a secular or a selfish hermeneutic hold you hostage to a dysfunctional faith. You see, it isn't just that the Galatian church has gotten it wrong on some of the finer points of Scripture or even some of the macro ideas of Scripture. It has resulted in a dysfunctional faith, has it not? Week after week, we've been beating this drum that they've begun to place faith in fleshly things because their hermeneutics was off. They read the Scriptures through the wrong kinds of lens. But the Galatians aren't the only ones who are at risk of barking up the wrong tree because the Galatians are doing the same thing that you and I are always doing. We are looking for significance. We all want to know at the end of the day that I am practicing the most genuine and authentic expression of faith possible. And I'm going to tell you that is only possible if you are constantly fighting for a gospel-centered hermeneutic or a biblical lens, a lens of Scripture that allows you to interpret the passage you're seeing correctly. And I'm hoping to help you with that today. As a church, if you've been around here for any length of time, you probably have heard us talk about our mission, which is to make disciples who are growing in the gospel as a family while on mission. When we talk about growing in the gospel, there are several things that come to mind. First and foremost, to grow in the gospel, I think you need to start with the basics. Can you locate the gospel? I'm working on your hermeneutics, I promise, stay with me. Can you grow in the gospel? Can you locate the gospel? Do you know what the locus classicus, is that you, Javiel? Hey, brother, I'm oh, good to see you, man. Um, can you grow in the gospel? Can you locate the gospel? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, John 3, 16, Romans 10, 8, 9, Romans 5. Can you locate the gospel? That's the first level of growing in the gospel. Number two, can you articulate the gospel in your own words? If I were to close the book and say, tell me what you heard when you read that. Can you articulate the gospel? Number three, can you integrate the gospel? Level three, growing in the gospel, is can you integrate what you read and what you've heard into a daily life practice? Number four, can you track the implications of the gospel? If I were to drop you in the book of Haggai, if I were to drop you in the book of Genesis, can you see the gospel implicated in Noah's Ark? Can you see the gospel implicated in the Passover feast when they put the blood on the top of the doorpost? Can you see the gospel implicated in, in places like the burning bush? Can you see the gospel implicated in all these little nooks and crannies of the scripture? Can you see how God has embedded within the scripture these gospel breadcrumbs to all point us to the work of Jesus, regardless of how far away from the work of Jesus you might be from uh, reading from a literary perspective? That's all a part of growing in the gospel. Now, that's four levels of growing in the gospel. Today, I want to talk about level five. Not only can you locate and articulate and integrate and see the implications of the gospel in texts that might be somewhat remote and removed from the, from the central message of the work of the cross, but can you also interpret your world? 
Like, as you're walking through your world on a daily basis, do you see gospel gaps and do you see gospel analogies? Do you see the place where the gospel has failed to saturate? And if not, this is where I want to help you. And I'm going to be honest with you. No one has mastered this. We all have to fight for this. And the reason that we all have to fight for a gospel-centered hermeneutic through which we interpret our world so that we don't end up with a dysfunctional faith is because our hermeneutic is crafted by how we, by how we immerse ourselves, not necessarily what we're trying to and trained to do. Remember, the dog just wants to please his master. He's earnest in his motives. But whatever you immerse yourself in becomes a very telling portion of your hermeneutics. Let's get more directly into the text. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, did you even listen to it? I believe one of the first pillars of making sure we've got a, a good hermeneutic, not a secular one or a selfish one that'll hold, my, that'll hold me hostage to a dysfunctional faith. But I believe that one of the first fundamentals is that I must listen to the whole Bible and not just the passages of my preference. I need to listen to the whole Bible, not just the passages of my preference. We all can have preferred areas of Scripture that we love to graze because that has become our favorite verse. Have favorite verses. Have great verses that you've chosen to memorize. Have verses that you'll make T-shirts out of and bumper stickers. Have verses that'll be on your screensaver. Have verses that you'll make little lockets out of and decorate your nurseries out of. By all means, but please, at the same time, will you listen to the whole Bible? And not just your favorite stuff. How do you do this, Pastor Rod? You've yelled, you've spat upon the podium. How does one grow in this way? Well, number one, I grow in the gospel first and foremost where I learn how to listen to the whole gospel or to listen to the whole Bible and not just my favorite passages, but one, growing in my understanding of the whole narrative of Scripture. To help you with your note takers, can you remember these letters? CFRC, CFRC. The whole meta-narrative of Scripture is this, the creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation. Every single thing you will ever read from the table of contents to the index in the back falls under the umbrella of the creation, the fall, the redemption, and the consummation. It falls somewhere on that thematic redemptive continuum. You and I need to grow in, the, in our understanding of that so that when, no matter where we drop down in the scripture, we can see where we are on that continuum. This is the first part of learning to listen to the whole Bible and not just the passages of my preference. Number two, not only do I need to grow with a heart of understanding the whole narrative, the whole redemptive narrative, but I also need to grow a heart, gain a heart of humility in the way that I approach the scriptures. The Bible is God's word. It is his inspired word. It is not just my utility to do whatever I want to with. I need to adopt that humility. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 tells us that all scripture, not just the ones I like, all scripture, not just the ones that are comfortable, all scripture, even the ones that I disagree with, all scripture is the inspired word of God, breathed out by him, life-giving, necessary for me. And it is good for what? Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that we may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So when I'm working through the scriptures, if I gain a heart of humility, before I go to the Bible with my situation, Lord, I need you to speak on this. I need to see some other things. By order of magnitude, the Bible says, come here, this is good for doctrine. What is the scripture saying about the Savior? What is God saying about himself? Can you locate that in what you're reading? 
Can you discern that from what you're reading? Can you, can you hear that in your listening? It's good for doctrine. It's good for what else? For reproof. Can you see what the scriptures are saying about your sin? Will you allow that passage to hold up a mirror to show you and me our shortcomings? What does it do after reproof? It corrects. It corrects. Can, scriptures, will you please show me where I need greater sanctification? I might not need to put both feet on the brakes and have a hard stop because that's reproof, but Lord, how would I veer this wayward area, this area where my perspective is a little bit bent? How does it get, how does it get corrected? How do I take this area of my life that's like a broken leg and put it in the cast of Scripture to get it mended right? That's correction. And then it says, good for instruction in righteousness. Now, by order of magnitude, four ways, four four. Four areas down the list, right? Now here is my situation. Lord, here is an issue that I'm working with in my life. What say you about this? I need to hear your words about my situation. But notice that before we get to trying to hear what the Bible is saying about my situation, I need to hear what it says about the Savior, about my sin, and about my need for sanctification. Because looking for solutions from the Scriptures before addressing who the Savior is and how he wants to speak to my sin will always be a short-circuited solution. It'll just be wrapping your issues in the, in, the, in the verses of your preference that may not speak comprehensively to what you really have going on in your life. And then, of course, the Bible doesn't stop there. Not only does it want to speak to, not only does it want to inform me about the Savior, talk to me about my sin, teach me about the need for sanctification, tell me about my unique situation, but it also wants to equip me for service, that I, won't, that I will be thoroughly furnished for every good work. And so this is why I scream, listen to the whole Bible, because the Bible's own self-testimony of what it comprehensively and holistically do, of what it holistically does is necessary for our lives. Listen here. If we are not reading the Bible through a gospel lens, that is, taking into consideration what it says about itself holistically, if we're not reading it through a gospel lens, it is inevitable that we will read it through a selfish and through a social lens without even trying. Some months ago, a little over a year ago, my father and I started a little business enterprise together. And one of the things that we do is we, we, we rent cars and all this other kind of stuff. And about five months into the business, I had been so immersed, I was so immersed in the business that I no longer saw cars as cars. I simply saw them as strings of revenue. This is not an indictment. It was kind of, and I didn't even try this. It was, it was crazy. I'd come out of the grocery store and I would see probably what you would call a Toyota Corolla. And I'd be like, nah, that's $37 a day. I would see a BMW X5 and I'm like, that's $130 a day. I'd see a Jaguar. That's, what year is that? Oh, that's $115 a day. I'd see a Ford Explorer. That's, 600 a week. But what's interesting about that? What happened to me? I didn't read a book. I didn't read a book on how to see cars no longer as a consumer, but to see the streams of revenue. I didn't read a book. I didn't try. I didn't even get on my knees and say, dear God, help me to see, help me to see Corollas as cash. I didn't. You know what it's the product of? My, herm my hermeneutic went from being a consumer to be a business person. And what changed my hermeneutic was my immersion. It was the stuff that I read, the stuff that I, that I, the stuff that I soaked in. And it began to shape my interpretive lens. Now, where are we going? 
If your mind is saturated with Twitter, saturated with social media, saturated with Fox, saturated with MSNBC, saturated with CNN, saturated with podcasts of a particular type, I assure you, you have a crafted a hermeneutic that is, that is without your even trying. Your president, my president, Joe Biden, our president, stood behind a podium just this past week and chided airlines for creating economy comfort. You know what I'm talking about? Economy comfort, those are the seats after first class and before coach. The seats that have an additional six inches of space. He said these words, that when you create these additional six inch spaces and then you charge people all extra money for that extra six inches of comfort, it uniquely compromises poor people and people of color. You took a business case and made it an ethnic case. How does that happen? Well, your brain is immersed in racial polarization and tribalism. Why? Because you fear that you're being ready to lose your job, and therefore you must strike fear and appeal to a voting block whose felt need is always financial. What's up, Jason? Hear me carefully, but here's the basic, here's the deal. An aircraft has a limited number of, a limited amount of space. The fuselage, the little tube in which we all sit. If it's got 35 rows and you take 10 rows, which across the plane could come out to be about 30 seats, and you give them a six additional inches, you have to give up seats in the back of the plane. Either they have to be taken out or either you gotta take away space from those seats. And if you take those seats out, you just took revenue opportunity away from the plane. I don't believe that, 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 that Joe, the, 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 the ASC mechanic, as he pulled out sequences, and this is against people of color, and this is against uh, uh, the poor. I don't believe that the CEO of the airline, when he said, we got to charge more money because we're giving up seats, and I don't believe he says, hoo hoo ha ha, and this will keep black people off the plane. This is nuts. But this is what our world is immersed in. It sees everything according to tribe and color. And while we can really get in on the amens, as I point fingers at people in our world who've adopted a secular hermeneutic, the Galatians were doing it too. They had a selfish and a secular hermeneutic, going in and looking at the wrong family tree. But why do we do it? To try to find significance. But I believe it can happen at a church just like this. Specifically a church that is committed to a display of the reconciling hope of the gospel, which means when you come in here, you see people of different types, ethnicities, and generations, and socioeconomic backgrounds sharing pews together. There are people in this very church who walk through those doors, and because you have a secular, social, fully Twitterized hermeneutic, when you come in and you see this beautiful array of, of ethnic people on the keys, on the drums, and singing up here, you don't see a scene from the Bible where people are standing around the throne worshiping the God from every tribe and tongue. What you see is who's missing from your particular ethnic demographic. You're bringing it in here. Text me, email me if you want to. I'd love to dialogue further about this critique. You come into the church and you, 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 you see anything that doesn't meet your preference. 
And you want to have a poll as to see who else feels that way. You're not working with a gospel-centered hermeneutic. You're, stu- you're steeped in tribalism. And here's the only place that I offer you an apology for my tone. I know you ain't trying to do it. But now that I've pointed it out to you, no more apologies will be offered. You have, you have sickened your heart and you have warped your hermeneutics by always swimming and drinking from the fountains of ethnicity and demographic. That's all you think about. That's what you're swimming in. Therefore, because you have baptized your heart in these kinds of tribalistic ideas, you can't help but come in and translate the church through them. Oh, look at that video of all the new members that are joining. I counted one, two, three, four. Hmm. We didn't have that many people join this time. Am I lying? Thank you. (laughs) It was getting tough there for a minute. The the emotional polygraph was like this. (laughs) It was like, okay. But that's the product of your hermeneutics. You're not trying to, but it's what you train your heart to do based on what you're immersed in. Listen to the whole Bible, not just read the passages of your preference. But it just just doesn't apply to issues of, of, of ethnicity and economics. Anything that you're deeply immersed in, you'll start to see that in the Scripture. You'll start to see the Scriptures through that if you don't fight for a gospel centered hermeneutic to see what the Bible is really saying before you try to make it say what you would prefer it say or what you have a problem with because it's not saying what you prefer. Our world is immersed in tribalism. You and I cannot afford to let ourselves be likewise. It is not natural to have a gospel-centered hermeneutic. You must fight for it. You must fight for it. I remember, I remember as a little kid sitting front rowish church, seven, eight years old, man, curious about the Lord, wanting to know him deeply. I got one person on my right who's like crying and rocking back and forth. I got another one laughing. I got another one standing up every time the pastor make a point going, ha-ha. And I was like, what is this? It's the perver- it feels like an ecclesiastical three-ring circus. This is, no cri- this is no critique on my childhood church. I'm just like listening to all these things. And I'm like, dear God, what do I do? I just want to know you. The pastor can go from zero to screaming in like 3.3 seconds. What's happening? All that is stimuli. I'm just a kid. I just want to know you. And so what I ended up doing was learning how to just like put my head down and focus on a singular spot on the carpet. It was like, dear God, if you're here, speak to me. What are you saying? What are you doing? I want to know you. Help me to just tune out. Therefore, sometimes you'll see me when we're here at worship, you'll see me sit down. And you'll be like, oh, oh, is he bored with this song? Does his back hurt? No. I'm trying to get focused. You know why? Because unfortunately, and fortunately, as a pastor, I I immerse myself in looking at everything. And if I don't fight for a gospel-centered hermeneutic, I'll wear a pastoral operations hermeneutic. And so I'm interpreting a church service through, oh my gosh, I hope Angel doesn't trip on this microphone cord. Uh, Who's the other person? Who's responsible for bringing out the podium today? Do we have enough programs? I wonder if the flags have blown over. Like, Like your brain is going everywhere because that's what you're immersed in. Trust me, whatever you're immersed in, you're not trying to do that, but it will shape your hermeneutic. So sometimes I have to sit down and fight for a gospel centered hermeneutic so I too can be in the moment just like you. You're not alone in the need to fight for a gospel-centered hermeneutic. It happens to everybody, and it's always the product of what you immerse your hearts and minds in. 
Therefore, I guess I'm making an appeal for immersing ourselves in the scripture and in the gospel more deeply. Why does this matter to the saints of Galatia? I think I've defined carefully. They wanted to be genuine. They wanted to be earnest. But they began to immerse themselves in the Bible in a way that did not matter. Well, not immerse themselves. Immerse themselves in ideas, genealogies in particular, that didn't lend itself to a gospel-centered hermeneutic. In verses 25 through 27, the Bible says, this is back to Galatians chapter 4, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. And uh, Jerusalem is above, is free, and she is our mother. Now here's, this is what I want you to really focus in. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one or the children of the barren one will be more than those who, are, who have a husband. Now this allusion back to Sarah who was not able to biologically, technically, or, bi or even culturally, or demographically, by any stretch of the imagination, she should not have been able to bear. Now, what's interesting is that throughout the Bible, we see a pattern of God doing things like this, where like Samuel's mother, Hannah, was barren. She didn't have a child. Where you even see in, uh, 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 in the New Testament, you'll see uh, actually Mary was not supposed to be able to have a child because she had not been with a man. You'll see uh, uh, back in the, uh, in the Old Testament, in the Garden of Eden, it says that the, 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 the son, the, the one who would crush the head of the adversary will be the seed of the woman. Women don't have seeds. What are you talking about? The Lord specializes in taking the barren and producing fruit in their lives, and it says that the fruit that comes out of the womb of the barren one will be more than even those who were able to give birth according to the flesh. Why does God do that? I believe the reason that he does it is found here. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 26, verse 2 through 29. Listen to these words. For consider your calling, brethren, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame that which is wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low to, uh, uh, in the world so that he could to, to, to despise even the things that are, excuse me. He chose the things uh, that are, that, that what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that in him no being, human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, salvation has been wired in such a way that we would clearly see that God specializes in doing what is impossible through, throw, through those who are improbable so that his glory is undeniable. This is why he works through the barren. This is why he works through those who are not supposed to be able to bear. This is why he saved the Gentiles so that when people experience the glorious mystery of the church, they were like, oh my goodness. Probably one of the most appropriate places in the world that you could say, oh my God. I can't believe you did that. I thought relationship with you was just a Jewish thing. But no, the great mystery and wonder of the church is that he's going to bring in these Gentiles, doing the impossible through the impractical so that his glory is undeniable. God, how could you possibly incorporate in church people who drink blood? I'm a great Jewish person. I've never been near blood. 
He specialized in it so that neither of the communities could boast when they stood before him in heaven because all of our righteousness would be found in Christ. The only thing that made us in was in Christ. The only way that a natural-born person who is a natural-born Jew, a person who was born according to the flesh of the supposed right ethnicity, the only person who could be a real child of Abraham, it won't be because you barked up that family tree, it'll be because you're in Christ's family tree. It's because you place faith in the work of Jesus. And this is the drum that Paul's trying to beat. You guys don't need to find significance in the genealogy of Abraham. You need to find significance in the genealogy of Christ. And you get to that branch by having faith in his completed work. Stop barking up the wrong tree. Listen to the whole Bible, not just the promises that pique your interest. Listen to the whole Bible, not just the promises that pique your interest. The Jewish community had a real tough time with so many of Jesus' messages because they were looking at the promises that piqued their interest that allowed them to appear to be a people of great ethnic prowess, but they kind of missed it. The gospel hermeneutic was saying, it isn't about this property or this progeny that I'm going to give this particular group of people. It is about those who will be children of promise who will place faith in what I'm doing through Christ and faith alone. God specializes in doing the impossible through the improbable so that his glory is undeniable. This is why the world will say, wow, the children of the barren one outnumber the children of the one who even had a husband? How is this the case? Verses 28 through the end of the verse. I'm going to get off. This is my exit. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was according to the flesh persecuted him who was according to, to the spirit, so it is also now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, talking about Hagar, this is a reflection back to the Old Testament. Cast her out with her son, for they will not inherit with the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but we are children of the free. I don't know, anybody here watch wrestling growing up? Anybody remember Roddy Roddy Piper? Signature move was the figure four leg lock. You remember that? But there were, every once in a while would come along somebody who could reverse it. You remember that somebody could reverse the figure four leg lock? If you didn't watch wrestling, don't worry about it, but let me tell you something. Here it is, the Jewish community, the Judaizers, who are telling Gentile believers that they need to become more like them and become more Jewish. And then Paul comes in with the theological and reverses the figure for a leg lock by saying, ha ha, guess who really are the children of Abraham? Those who place faith in Christ. You can go ahead and take pride in the fact that you came out of the right family tree, but that's the wrong tree. Listen to the whole Bible, not just the loudest and most persistent voices. For some of you, I may be the loudest voice. I may even be the, the most persistent voice. And I believe this text even applies to me. Don't just listen to, don't just listen to me. Do, do what the, the Bereans did. They were more noble than they at Thessalonica in that everything that was taught to them, they went to the scriptures to see if they were so. Be, be, be like those who were found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, who we are all called to, to, to show ourselves to be approved before God, not before any other teacher, but approved before God because we rightly divide the scriptures. Why does Paul hit so hard on this identity issue? Well, obviously, identity is not only an issue then, but it's a big issue today. 
Identity is a crucial discovery that needed to be made by the Galatian church. They needed to understand where their real identity came from. And the Bible tells us that, or or we understand, I think even intuitively, that when I understand where I come from, I also get a sense of why I matter. There's something about my matter. There's something about why I am valuable that extends from the fact that who I came from. And so identity, or why is identity and value a gospel issue? John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, speaks into it in this most incredible way. Talking about Jesus, beginning with verse 13, he came to his own. Follow this carefully. Jesus came to his own, those who were of the same ethnic family tree. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. He who believed on his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God who were, not, who were born not of the blood, not of the, uh, uh, the will of the flesh, but they were, and they were not born of the will of man, but they were born by virtue of the will of God. Anybody who places faith in Christ, that's you. You were, you were reborn into the family of God, not because you had the right heritage or the right family tree. Your identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ if you place faith in him. You were not born of flesh, you were born of promise. This is the point that the Apostle Paul is trying to drive home to the Galatian saints, and it is a point that I believe needs to be hammered home today because we are in a time that is trading heavy on identity. My name is Roderick Dewberry, and my pronouns are he and him. Is that a revelation for somebody? (laughs) But more important to me than my pronouns are my prepositions. You see, the Bible tells me that all those who place faith in Christ, that we have been saved by him and for him. Those are my prepositions, by him and for him. I was created by him and I was saved for him and for his glory and for his work. I was purchased by him at the cross and for him. My prepositions are profoundly more important than my pronouns. But see, the reason that people, and, and, and this, is a, this is both, this is an encouragement, this is a critique, this, this is a ball of yarn. I am critiquing the pronoun movement, but but here's why I have compassion. It is a deep quest to be identified properly and then to be valued properly. This is a gospel issue. It ain't a LinkedIn issue. It's not an HR issue. This is a gospel issue. People who don't know how much they're worth are trying to get that worth by being properly gendered and properly pronounced. But your pronouns wouldn't matter as much if you had the right prepositions. If you knew you had been made by him and for him, you would fully understand that you were created with unique values and distinctives that are awesome and wonderful to God, regardless of any given day that you may have looked at yourself and didn't feel like you were in the right body. That's the one he gave you. Glorify him in it and with it. If you got the right prepositions, your pronouns take care of themselves because you won't stumble over them if you've been saved by him and for him. Even if you're not saved, if you know that you were made by him and for him, 
You, as creatures, before you even came to know Jesus, you still had value. Christians are not the most valuable people in the room. The value set is equal. We were all made by him. But then Jesus says, to prove to you that you are valuable, God will empty his pockets and cash out the biggest check he has available. He will trade his son for you. Your prepositions matter so much more than your pronouns. In this day where we're all on a, on a deep quest to be properly identified, properly referred to. You can't call white folks white folks no more. It's, I think it's the new word Anglo. You can't call Latin people Latin people no more. You got to call them Latinx. I talk to Latin people, they don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Why? Because the woke pamphlet of pronouns and adjectives change every week. So rather than get my exegesis from the woke pamphlet, I'll just get it from the from the word. I can't keep up. You can't even call me the right thing. People looking out from this audience, you look up on this stage and you'll see, let me tell you something. I'm, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go just a little bit more than I'm gonna get, I'm gonna sit down, I promise. Hmm. You come into this church and you see one black pastor, one white pastor. If your first reflex is, huh, I wonder who really in charge. You're not thinking with a gospel-centered hermeneutic. If your first reflex is, oh, oh, that's the pastor pastor and that's the token pastor. You're working with a social hermeneutic. You ain't working with a gospel-centered hermeneutic. If you look up on this stage and you go, well, you know, Joaquin is a person of color until I don't see enough black people in particular, now he's no longer a person of color. You're working with a work hermeneutic. You ain't working with a gospel-centered hermeneutic. You, 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 you immerse yourself in the woke pamphlet because the rules are always changing. Do distinctions matter? Absolutely. Because God said they matter and God made those distinctions matter. But that's not your first reflex when you see people and when you see things. Do not allow this church to be undermined by the winds of tribalism. Let us fight for a gospel-centered hermeneutic. Patronize the news channel of your choice. Patronize the social media of your choice, by all means. But make sure when you put it down that that doesn't become your only means of immersion and that you are fighting for a God-centered hermeneutic. When something sets your teeth on edge and you don't fully understand it, go to the word. Don't go to the barber shop. Don't go to your beauty shop or wherever the most recent watering holes for reshaping one's mindset are. Don't go to the internet. Go to the word of God and ask the Lord, Lord, speak to me. Help me not just read your word. Help me to hear what you are saying about these issues. Your prepositions matter way more than your pronouns. And so I'm going to ask you the question, do you have the right prepositions this morning? Can you say with 100% confidence that you have been saved by him and for him? Can you 100% say that you are a child of promise and not one who is enslaved to have to find value in the most recent iteration of the woke pamphlet that will, you'll go to bed today and be called one thing and you'll wake up tomorrow and be called something else. Do you have the right pronouns? Are you by him and for him? 
If you don't know that to be certain, man, I'd love to have a conversation. If you're not so bold as to come down front and see me after the message, email me and says, I have some additional questions about what it means to have a gospel-centered hermeneutic. I have some, some more questions about what it means to have the right uh, prepositions. I have some questions. I, I'm a person who struggles with gender identity, and, 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 and I'm fighting, but I want to I see myself through the Word of God. Help me out, Pastor Rod. Don't judge me. Help me. Email me. Come see me if it's too, if, if it's too sensitive to talk about right now. Email me. I'll sit down with you. Because if you're in these seats, that means you're, you're, you're fighting to have some kind. You're, you're barking. You're running hard. You wouldn't be here if you didn't want to get it right. And so just on that premise alone, I want to talk to you about these things. Man, if you are, um, if you're a person who recognizes in this moment that you have been barking up the wrong tree because your immersion is in a bunch of ideas that have become woefully selfish and secular, and you were just trying to be earnest, you were trying to be a great cultural exegete, but you recognize that you're reading onto the Bible your preferences, and you're just like, Lord, I repent. I, you don't need me to repent. You can do that business with you, God, in your heart. But, but I want you to pray about that. Lord, help me to become a person who fights new, fights afresh, and with new vigor to have a gospel-centered hermeneutic. And then third, third audience. If you just kind of been hanging out here at Gospel Hope, and you're like, you know what? Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to be in an environment that speaks to the issues like that. I don't have a church home because, you know, I, I got a weird background with church or whatever I do. I'm new to town. But yeah, I want to, to walk through the scriptures and then be able to turn those scriptures toward the issues of my world, but at the same time, see the Bible world rightly. And you say, I, I, I think this is a place. I, I want to share the pew with people who look different and do community with folks like this so that, so that I am not caught up in the winds of tribalism. I'm, I want to go to a church that is trying to, trying to reprove all of the tribalism in the world. And you say, you know, I think gospel hope is it. This is, this is it. You're welcome here. What they used to say, the doors of the church are open, right? This place is open to you. Whether you choose to respond by coming to see me or Pastor Ryan after the message, or whether you choose to email one of us to, to investigate more of what's going to, uh, what it's all about, I'd love to hear from you and I'd love to see you. We also have something else coming up in a couple of weeks called Gospel Hope 101 for those that want to take that next step. But, um, man, let's pray and I'm going to sit down. Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm thankful to you for speaking to us through your word, for maybe even opening up some old wounds, but now you can cause them to heal more properly. Will you search every one of us, oh God, and find out where our hermeneutics are askew, where our gospel lens is somewhat cloudy or either it's cracked. Lord God, help us. We need you. We can't do this on our own. We're earnest. We're trying hard. We want to be genuine, but we recognize that we can get off track. And we come to you with that humility. I beg and ask, oh God, that you would meet us at the place of our need. Amen. Let's worship him.